Welcome to the Private Practice Academy podcast, where we share the formula for building and scaling a sustainable and profitable group practice without sacrificing your freedom and life in the process. I'm Kirsten Anderson-Ridge, and I'm a clinical and counselling psychologist and business mentor. And I'm passionate about helping you to create, build, and sustain a profitable private practice. I've made the leap from solo practitioner to group practice owner and created my own separate income stream. I'll share with you how to have a successful group practice and the time to create other income streams without feeling you have to choose between one or the other. I'm going to share my journey and invite other therapists to share theirs so you too can create the practice you've always desired. If you're ready to start making your practice work for you, you're in the right place. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Private Practice Academy podcast. Today, I wanted to talk to you about contractors versus employees. What should you do? I often have my mentoring clients talk with me about this. And I'd have to say that I have identified a very common theme. And I can absolutely relate to this very common theme because it's what I did. When I first made the decision to move out of being a solopreneur, which was a big deal, and it's a pretty big deal for most psychologists, I hummed it hard. I really did. I thought, what do I do? And I tell you what felt safe. It felt safe to have a contractor. Now, this was about four or five years ago before we really had the clarity around whether or not we needed to pay superannuation for the contractors. Now, I will come back to that point because it's an important one. But back then, it wasn't an absolute given. And it depended more on your practice and how you ran. So I know for myself that it was a much easier option for me to have a contractor and to think to myself, okay, this is going to work. I can manage this. I don't need to worry if there's going to be enough clients for them and, goodness, who am I to be making all of that money to be able to pay someone because I didn't think it was possible and thoughts went through my head oh, gosh, what happens if there's no clients and they're an employee? Oh, I still have to pay them. Oh, how's that going to be? And I would say it's the atypical scarcity mindset that most psychologists, and if you're listening to this and going, hey, I'm not a scarcity mindset person, do you know what? Please let me know because, goodness me, I'd have to say that uh, I think I need to send you a medal because most psychologists, myself included, back in the day, absolutely come from a scarcity mindset. Not enough clients, not enough of anything. Goodness, we won't have enough money to do this. It's just such a common thing. Where do we get that from? Oh, gosh, do we blame the training or do we just say these are atypical psychologist schemas that we all need to work on? I think that might be for another podcast to talk about mindset, which I will because I think it's really important. But I do think that having a contractor in the first instance is far easier to settle with. So I remember bringing on my first contractor and 
they are now my clinical lead and also an employee. So I will say that I started off with all contractors. Then I went to a hybrid model because I started employing provisionals. And most of you know that if you're going to employ a provisional, they need to be employed. They cannot be contractors. So I have done most, but now I have landed on the employee model. Why? I think for me, it's down to two things. It's less work for me, oddly. To And I'll explain that. It's less work for me, oddly, to have employees. It's easier to delegate tasks. And I'll be honest, when you run the numbers, there's a 20% higher return if you have an employee. And that is something to consider if you're running a business and you want to have a group practice that is going to allow you to pay a good wage, to feel confident about your numbers, and also to be able to offer to pay for PD, to have a PD budget, to be able to have team days, to be able to have dinners, to be able to have these things that I guess feel like a cohesive practice. And do you know, for all the dinners in the world, if you're not treated well as an employee or a contractor, then a dinner's not going to help you, nor will a team day. But I do think it's good to be able to have the finances and the backing to think, hey, I can do these things if I need to. So for me, I've landed on the employee model. But let's go back to talking about contractors. So fundamentally, what is the difference between a contractor and an employee? Well, let's say that the first thing is that As a contractor, you would be giving them far more freedom than is afforded an employee. So what might that look like? So a contractor sets their own fees. Now, I have had some of my mentoring clients say to me, well, what happens if the contractor sets their fees higher than my fee? And I say, well, rather than thinking to yourself, that could be embarrassing, although I'll be honest, it could be, couldn't it? If you're going to be the owner of a practice, then and you have your own caseload, you 100% need to be charging the most um, out of everybody in the practice. So if in actual fact your contractor comes back and says, well, hey, I charge, say, for example, 240 and you're charging 230 well, then you definitely need to raise your prices. So that's another exercise, isn't it, raising prices. Tricky again, but... I would say probably a good thing to do at least once a year. But let's say they've set their fees and you need to raise yours, that's fine. So they set their own fees. They set their own hours. Now, the thing about setting their own hours, you might think, well, what, do they just come in for two hours a day and you can't do anything about it? No, you would have a contract that states their hours. They sign for this service agreement and it's a, it's agreed upon. It's not bestowed upon, it's agreed upon. And that is how you would work it. So there are options in terms of how you run a contractor as well. So one of the things that I used to do was have a split. Now, most practices will do a 50-50 or a 60-40. The 60-40 does seem to be more popular. And that was the one that I chose. But I now believe that having a set fee for a contractor would be far more workable, in my opinion, 
because it's a set fee and you don't have to be concerned about how that's managed. Obviously, that is something that you would negotiate with the contractor, but you've also got to base that on your bottom line. So whatever your bottom line is, that is the way that you would go. You would think, okay, well, if I need to make X, then you've taken into account all of your expenses, your own goals, what it takes to run a practice, what it takes to run your own personal expenses. You might think, well, do personal expenses come into it? Well, as a practice owner, they absolutely have to because when you think about it, you've got your business that you have to run and then you've obviously got to run your personal expenses as well. They're not separate per se. They are for accounting purposes, but in terms of your life purposes, one needs to complement the other. So also something to take into account for a contractor is a contractor has every right to refuse work. So say, for example, you have a referral come in and you think to yourself, oh, gosh, this would be a great referral for the contractor. This fits with their niche. You provide the information for the referral to the contractor and they say, no. And you might think, well, I'm not happy about that. Well, do you know what? Having a contractor does not preclude you from being unhappy. In fact, you could be unhappy or happy, but if they don't want to take on the client, then there isn't really any way to say to them, you have to. You can try and talk to them about it. You can try all those things, but fundamentally, if they say no, then that's the answer. Now, what I will jump in and say here is with my employees, I ask them when they come on board, who do you like to see? What lights you up? What would you look into, Alex, Alexi, we use Alexi, and what would light you up if you opened up your diary and saw these clients in there? What would say to you, yes, I'm excited for my day? They list them off and I say to them things like at my practice, we don't see high-risk clients, we don't see personality disorders, we don't see eating disorders. Now, We choose to not see those presentations because we don't have the required training or the support that's required for that. And to me, that's far more important than taking on a client just because you might make some, dare I say, money out of it. It's about supporting the client and supporting a client appropriately. So if you can support someone appropriately, take them on. If you can't, it's always 100% best not to. So in terms of that, I do talk to my employees about this. Wing interrupt this very exciting chat to let you know all about my new mastermind where I take you from psych to CEO. It starts on July the 10th and I only have five spots. This is where I teach you how to address your mindset challenges, which have stopped you from scaling in the past, how to take a step back from back-to-back client work, and how to manage this, how to manage pushback. And I show you how to scale your practice by taking on staff. I tell you all about how to do this. If you'd like more information, there's more information in the show notes. Now, back to the chat. And we sometimes negotiate. Sometimes they have taken on different clients, ones that they haven't got a lot of experience in but would like to try. And I think that's the most important way to try to manage that. Another thing to take into account is 
true contractors will need to supply their own equipment. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because if you have a clinic like we do that has autism assessments, ADHD assessments, learning assessments, et cetera, do we say to the contractor, oh, well, I'm sorry, you can't use those? Well, of course they can use them because why would you ask somebody to use theirs if you've got yours? Well, if they have those available to them, yes, it would be best if they use them. But if they don't have them available to them and or haven't purchased them and you have them, well, then, yes, you can. But if you go out and purposefully buy, say, the MIGDIS or the ADOS and it's for the use of the contractor and you don't have employees, etc. well, I think that the tax office may question that. And so from a standpoint, it's really important to make that distinction. Other things to consider with a contractor is supervision. Now, you might think to yourself, if I have a contractor in the practice, wouldn't it make sense for me to supervise them? Well, yes, of course, 100%. I think the challenge is that when you have an employee, you would include that as part of their contract. With a contractor, you would need to get them to pay you for supervision because it needs to look like a transaction, not needs to look like it does need to be a transaction. And if you are going to treat a contractor like an employee, the difficulty you're going to have is the tax office would look at that and go, "Mm." usually with employee, they would get free supervision. They would be told that they need to come to practice meetings. Well, that leads me to my next point, practice meetings. You can suggest quite strongly that they attend. You can put it in their contract and say, as part of the service agreement, I would really like for you to attend. Well, you can't make them, but you can strongly suggest. And I would always say that a lot of contractors may attend because they want to be part of the practice. They want to be included in decision-making and they want to be able to contribute. So it is something, though, that there's no, what's the best way to put this? I would have said you can't necessarily be prescriptive with a contractor. You can if it's in the contract because then they've signed up for it and that's what's going to happen. I also think something to remember is contractors and leave. So a contractor could say to you next week, I am going to have the third week off in December. And you might say, okay, that's fairly short notice. They might say, well, I've got something on I need to get done and that's what I'm going to do. Now, again, as I said to you before, it does not preclude you from being unhappy. You can be unhappy about it. But my suggestion, put it in the contract that you would like four to six weeks notice of leave where possible. And you could put a reason in there for that. You could sort of say in order to plan and in order for admin to have time to reschedule clients. So that is really something to consider. In terms of what else you would need to consider, superannuation, let's talk about that for a minute. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, when I first had contractors, there wasn't the need to pay superannuation and there wasn't a legislation brought in, which it was brought in last year, 
So it's now important to pay superannuation on behalf of your contractor, but you wouldn't necessarily be paying their superannuation out of your fee. You would pay it out of their section because when you think this one through, a few things, they are going to need to pay super, you know, superannuation anyway. So why not pay it for them? That is sensible. I think at the end of the day, you would pay it weekly. I know for my employees, we always pay our superannuation weekly because I personally cannot bear the thought of not paying or owing superannuation and coming to the bass and going, oh, goodness me, um, you haven't paid your super for your employees. No, that's not a feeling that I would like to have. I like to be up to date. That's just me. Perhaps it's just the accountant in me. I don't know. So I think it's important to discuss this with your contractor and just let them know where possible the arrangement that you would like to have with them about their superannuation. And you might say, oh, yes, but I live in state X and I don't know that they have these requirements. Well, to be honest, do we want to, I guess, come up against the tax office when it comes to this? I wouldn't. I wouldn't suggest it because they're very strict about it. And they do have a, and I'll put it in the link in the show notes, they do have three to four ways that they test out whether or not this person that's working for you or has worked for you, which is often when the problems happen after someone's left, is this person an employee? Is this person a contractor? How has this person been treated? But I will put that link in the show notes for you because I think that's actually a very helpful piece of information to have. So fundamentally, they are the main, I guess, identifiers of a contractor. So an employee, what do we differentiate there in terms of being an employee? Well, we pay a wage. And in the contract, you would talk about whether or not you pay this wage weekly, whether you pay this fortnightly, whether you pay this monthly. Now, being an accountant back in the day, my accountant brain tells me that it's good to pay wages weekly. Yes, it's a bit more bookkeeping, but to me, I'm on top of it. It's easy to manage. I know when I was an employee, I always found that being paid once a week was really helpful. However, you could do another option and that would be fortnightly. Monthly, if you have a lot of employees, could get, I guess, challenging with cash flow. So my suggestion weekly or fortnightly for those reasons. Clearly, you have to pay tax. Now, what I do is I each week add up okay, what do I need to pay for tax? And I won't say that I add it up every week, but when I had my employees or when I first had my employees, I now have eight of them. So what happens with that is I was adding up each week, okay, how much tax do I need to pay? Then, of course, there's a tax that I need to pay for myself personally. So I measure that each week across a month average it out, and then I start putting that amount of money into my, what I call, it's a little bit of profit first, if you've heard of that, but basically you have different accounts for different things. So I do have an account where I have all of the staff wages and their annual leave, etc., just so it's all there. I also have a tax account. And I put money into that tax account and then I pay that directly 
to the tax department every single week. So when I come to do my BAS, it's all there and it is done and I don't have to think about it. So when my bookkeeper does the BAS for me, I know that I've put enough money aside to cover the BAS because there's not a lot of things that I find to be worse than looking at that and going, I owe money. That I don't enjoy at all. So clearly with employees, you do have to pay super and you would need single touch payroll. Now, single touch payroll is something that generally speaking, a bookkeeper or an accountant would manage. You can also do single touch payroll, but that's if you're paying the wages yourself. You can always get your bookkeeper to pay that. I can talk more about that in another episode, but my bookkeeper pays the wages and you can decide in terms of, and a healthy way to do this is you can decide, okay, does the bookkeeper put together the wages and you press the send button or does the bookkeeper organise that in the reverse and the button is sent by them? There does need to be two people involved. So whichever way you go, it's important to have two people in the process. That's just for good measure and it's also so nothing odd happens. So some of that's a little bit of a side note, but I think it's important to remember. You also set your employees' fees yourself. They could get involved in that, but really you set that up for them. Equipment, obviously you provide the equipment for your employees. You can also say to them it's very important that you come to all of the meetings, particularly when they're not full-time employees. And you would settle that out in the contract. Also, there are some major differences when you create a template of a contract. So my suggestion for that is the first time you have a contractor, the first time you have an employee, whichever way you decide, that you get a lawyer to write this up for you. Now, I would always say Strawberry Seed or Employee Shore. They also do contracts. Obviously, those two companies have different ways of working. But once you have these contracts, you don't have to get a contract written every single time by a lawyer. You've then got the template. So what you would need is you would need a letter of offer for an employee. You would need a job description. You would need a handbook for a contractor. You would need a service agreement, a handbook, and not so much a job description. So I'm going to talk about that further in another episode, but it's very important to have all of the information ready and make it different for a contractor versus an employee. So there are a few things to consider. As I have progressed in my group practice, I will say that the employee model does work better for me. I find it creates more structure. It also, from an employee perspective, means that they have security. They know they have sick leave. They know that they have their tax, their super, and everything paid. And as I said, you do have to pay the contractor's super. But you see, with a contractor, and this isn't something you need to worry about as a practice owner, but certainly if you are a contractor, you actually have to put aside your own annual leave, your own sick leave. So when you can't work, you still pay yourself. It needs to work for you. So if contractors are going to work for you, an employee might work for you. I know for me, 
I like to have security for my employees. I also like everything to be pretty even, and you can certainly do that with employees. I also like to provide PD for my employees. I like to provide an environment that's conducive and everybody feels included. I know sometimes from feedback that I've had from some of my mentoring clients that are contractors that sometimes they don't feel part of a practice. I guess that sort of comes with the territory because you could feel included, but then you could be treated as an employee. And I will say, unfortunately, that a lot of contractors are treated as as employees. And particularly when there's lots of, no, you can't do this, no, you can't do that, when really that is not something that we can functionally do as a practice owner. Anything, as I say, that you want a contractor to do, it does need to be in that contract. So do spend some time thinking about that. If you need support with what to put in a contract, a lawyer will help you, but also a colleague, a business coach can also help you with things like that because they've often been through it themselves. I really hope that this has helped today to define the difference between a contractor and employee. And also I hope that my insights into what's worked for me, what hasn't worked for me, and also information about what might define the two has been helpful. I wish you all the best with your first hire, your second hire, your third hire, and all things private practice. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Private Practice Academy podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please head across and subscribe and leave me a review. That would mean the world to me. Also, feel free to come and hang out with me on Instagram at Kirsten Anderson Ridge.